0: Welcome to another riveting edition of The Dishcast, where I get to pick interesting people who have ideas and experiences that they want to share, and expose them to you all. Um, this week, I have a wonderful young writer, Sean McCreech, who works at the New York Times and has also written for Liberties, the uh, the non-online Leon Wieseltier.com. Celeste Marcus, I think her name is, That's uh, right. production, which is super old world and so anti-tech. It's kind of tech at this point. Um, it's a wonderful journal, and I uh, appeal to people to subscribe to it. It's one of the few journals of intellectual life that has not completely surrendered to only one viewpoint, uh, critical theory, and actually has interesting arguments from all sorts of perspectives. It's an old-school liberal magazine, and Sean also works at the New York Times, of course, where he recently also did a column on the subject we're going to talk about, which is the opioid epidemic. I, I did a piece on this a few, I mean, a couple of years ago now, and the more I read about it, the more I looked into it, the more grotesque it was, um, and, but Sean has actual first-person, first-hand experience. And I know you don't like talking about your personal life and everything, but I do think talking about the world you grew up in as a, as, as a kind of example of what is happening. Tell me, where did you grow up?
1: Yeah, I grew up in a town called Hatboro, which is uh, Montgomery County, Pennsylvania. It's uh, just right outside of Philly.
0: Hatboro, right? Right. You said it's something somewhat different. Habro, is that? Okay. Uh, no, Habro. Habro, okay. Yeah, okay, bro. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and tell me about that town. It's 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 outside of Philly, but so how long does it take to get to Philly?
1: For? Just like, uh, I mean, to Philadelphia County, it's just a ten minute drive. I oh, mean, it's okay. just pretty much across the city line. Um, nice suburb. It's uh, you know, it's a mix of working class and not. It's um, it's part of a the, the neighboring township um, gets a little bit wealthier. But um, yeah, there's a good mix of like lower middle class, middle class people. Um, ostensibly nice town. Public schools were good.
0: America, as we once understood it. Right? That's right. Yeah. Um, and your parents, none of your family had gone to college, right? They, tell me about them. Yeah, whatever. that's right.
1: Um, my mom's a hairdresser. Um, when she met my dad, he was a bartender. Um, that's,
0: that's that's first of all, that's hot. <laughs> <Exactly>. That's great. <laughs>
1: yeah. Um uh they they had me when they were young. I was at their wedding, which happened to be on Halloween. Um <laughs> I think I was the uh you know, I was in the wedding, I think I was the ring bearer. Wow. Um yeah. And um then he went on to found um you know, McCreeche Tree Service, which cut down trees and did landscaping and um yeah, my brother's a construction worker and my sister's a hairdresser too. And a lot of my friends work with their hands; they're welders or roofers. Uh, it's that kind of
0: place. My sister's a hairdresser too. Um, cool. I, and I'm also someone um, who was the first to go to college for my family, from a relatively small town in in, in prosperous southern England, um, but a pretty regular little town. Um, uh, do you think that makes a difference in your engagement with reality now? Your background? I mean, you're how old? You're in your twenty. You're, I'm twenty-eight. Twenty-eight. Um, obviously it does. That's how it, it's really <laughs> formative. It. But how exactly do you feel a little out of place sometimes at the, the times or, um, um, I'm not sure. I think that,
1: um, I think that it's really easy to get out of touch if your bubble consists only of people that work in elite media institutions or went to the Ivy league or if your whole world is just sort of media or academia. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think it's really important to have friends that have no idea what is happening in that world. I mean, yes. I can't think of a single person from Pennsylvania who even has a Twitter account that I know. That is so, and it's,
0: such a relief also, yeah. Yeah,
1: I mean, I think it's a really important way to kind of um, – they're a great sounding board and a gut check. And, you know, it's nice to uh, to go back there and, and, and have it be different.
0: You stay up with them presumably on Facebook a little bit.
1: Yeah, I um I deleted my Facebook a while ago, but I, I made another one just to kind of lurk a little bit, um, which, yeah, that's definitely their social media of choice, I would say.
0: So when you're growing up, you start hitting your teens post-puberty, you start hanging out with your friends in the usual kind of teenage thing, and it's a lot of weed, it's a lot of booze. Um, and how did that change?
1: Yeah, so the column that I wrote in The Times last week was sort of part two, Um. To something that I'd written for Liberties over the summer, which uh, was a much kind of grittier, more long-form, you know, narrative about how the opioid crisis plays out in a high school setting. Um, Which, you know, it's basically like picture, you know, dazed and confused. If only everyone in the town had a bottle of pills in their, you know, medicine cabinet. I mean, that's what the society is like now. So it starts off very, um, you know, yeah, like a normal teenage movie, you know, ninth, 10th grade, you're smoking weed in the woods, you're drinking beers, you're drinking bottles of liquor. Um, but at a certain point, pills enter the picture, and it's, it's, um, you know, not just with drug dealers, but everybody, a lot of people's parents have um, prescriptions to stuff, and kids would raid their medicine cabinets, and it's kind of like, you know, everybody has something different on a Saturday night at a house party, and you start mixing stuff, and it starts small. And then, you know, very quickly, within two or three years, before you know it, some people are just doing heroin. And it just kind of happened all pretty quickly.
0: And actually a bulk of people that first started on things, on these things, on OxyContin, maybe started out with Percocets, Mm -hmm. some other uh, opioid-based medicines. But they didn't – some people obviously got it from doctors who were – who were incentivized, and also some, several of them were incredibly corrupt in writing these scripts almost routinely and making lots of money from it. And also, of course, the Sackler family making a fortune off this too. But many of them got them from relatives. The, the, the way in which people raided their parents or their brothers and sisters' mm-hmm. medicine cabinets. Um, and, of course, once you start on these... They do have a quite powerful addictive uh, content to them. It's 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 definitely more powerful than weed, for example.
1: Yeah, it it grips you, and the way that we were treating it, it sounds so ridiculous, and it is ridiculous to look back on it. But to treat Percocet like it's a party drug, um, which is just totally bizarre. And I can remember there was a certain point in high school where it felt like the parties actually changed because it's not. There's a difference between a bunch of drunk kids running around a house trying to get laid and chain-smoking cigarettes versus, you know, a year or two goes by and you go to a party and half the party is asleep on the couch with lit cigarettes and, you know, can barely stand up or move because they're just drugging the shit out of themselves. Um, And it did feel like you could start to see this happen.
0: On the – brilliantly on the first bottles for OxyContin, it told you you must not – Crush or snort, this right, <laughs> right. Even though you could, mm-hmm. and of course, if you did, uh, the effect was had much bigger immediate impact. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so that was also a, a function, right? Crushing the things,
1: yeah, for sure. And um, that actually that played itself out at a, you know, that. Um, when I was in 11th grade, Purdue Pharma tweaked the Oxycontin pill to make it sort of uncrushable. They thought that this mm-hmm. would stop it. So this caught me right in the peak of when everybody was doing it in my world. And um, all that did was make people start taking heroin.
0: Right, because it's just very hard to to match that sudden big high exactly from a much subtler mm-hmm. effect of, of taking pills.
1: And um, heroin's a lot cheaper too. So if you're buying it from a drug dealer – you can get, you know, twice the impact for half the cost.
0: And the drug dealers turned out to be pretty good at what they did in as much as – I mean, I, I read a whole bunch of stories and, and accounts of this. But they made it much easier to get a, a little bag of, of tar heroin than they would – than you would if you had to go to get um, some more serious drugs or other drugs. And, and they, they understood the appeal of this in those places.
1: Right. Yeah, I read that in your piece, which I thought was really interesting. I, you know, I've never done uh, heroin, and I I never even did OxyContin. Um, I kind of cut myself off after Percocet. So a lot of this is stuff that I learned afterwards. But um, yeah.
0: But why did you not? And everyone else, well, not everyone else, but a lot of a lot people. of your friends did. What What do you think was the difference between you and them? <laughs> You had a bad experience once, right? I
1: did, yeah. Um, I was like sort of in a phase where I was trying a lot of different things like everybody else. And I I had a couple bad experiences with Percocet. Uh, You know, this one time we crushed up a a Perc 30 and just kind of railed a bunch of lines of it. And I felt like I was going to, you know, you start dry heaving and you feel like you're going to throw up. And it was just awful. I mean, I I realized that that's just not, that wasn't fun for me. And um, Oxy's seemed scary. You know, you do stuff because you see older kids are doing it and it seems fun and it seems cool. And are you edgy enough to, to try it? And, you know, you just.
0: So peer pressure kind of starts on this. Stuff.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, and it's like, how far do you want to take your partying kind of thing?
0: And some of the some of the more sort of prestigious kids, the lacrosse team. Oh, yeah, for uh, sure. That once they started to do this, it became super cool in, in many ways.
1: In a way, yeah, it's interesting because it, it, it spanned a lot of clicks in my high school. Um, this was not just like there was a one lunch table full of druggies and that was contained to that. I mean it was very widespread on the football team, the lacrosse team this kind of this stuff was everywhere.
0: Some people told me that, that uh, in football teams and so on um, they were given out as pain meds to recover from injuries um, and those then got that that is one route in.
1: I could see that, yeah. yeah. With with us, it was more about the party, and there was sort of a dark allure to it, and there were rap songs about it, and it was just sort of like how wasted did you want to get on a Saturday night, you know? Oh, so-and-so brought oxy, sweet.
0: But the wasted means on these drugs in particular, you get tired, you 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 dip out, right? right. That's that's mm-hmm. one of the, the expressions you don't really know. Uh, right. They dip out, which means that they kind of nod off. Mm-hmm. Right? That's Exactly. That's the, uh, that doesn't seem like a great party drug. No, <laughs> exactly. Everybody is falling asleep.
1: It made yeah, it made parties really boring, to tell you the truth. Right. Um, and
0: so, why didn't others, do you think, think this is boring? Let's let's move off this.
1: Well, some did, and right. others didn't. But um, you know, before it reached that point where it started getting pretty scary, there was actually a lot of. It sounds terrible to say, but there was a lot of hilarity as well. I mean, if you think about a house with 25-year-old, 15-year-olds running around, popping different pills and downing beer, I mean— funny shit would happen and it did seem like a good time at first and then it wasn't
0: what funny shit do you remember
1: (laughs) i mean we would just we were nuts i mean i remember like i had this one anecdote in the story but i remember like we'd go to the movies and everybody would just like pop a bunch of xanax and klonopin and mix it with other stuff and be drinking and people would be like zombies walking through the movie theater and it just like funny shit would happen and I, i remember one time um this kid stole a bunch of pills, and we thought that it was something else, and it ended up being like antipsychotic medication to treat schizophrenia. And the whole house had down the whole bottle, and it was just like, you know, it was this sort of picturesque, ridiculous thing um, that, you know. I, and I, I, uh, I talked to my friend uh, David, who's the subject of the Times column. I talked to him before he relapsed and passed away. We talked about a lot of this, which made it into the first piece. And you know, he said, plain and simple. Um, We wouldn't have all been doing it if it wasn't fun. And that seems maybe obvious, but that's just something that you can lose sight of. I mean, in the beginning, it does seem fun, which is why kids do it.
0: I do think it's important to understand how drugs can be super fun. I mean, how they can – there's a reason people do them. On the other hand, it seems that this kind of – this particular kind of drug really is a kind of nummer. It's it's a kind of dissociative – it's not like crack where you do crack and you go out and you I don't know what you do you run around you commit violence you have lots of fun you have lots of energy this is like take all your energy away
1: yeah it's like you know it's the opposite of like less than zero you know the Brat Pack movie where it's a bunch of teenagers doing coke and having a blast and it looks like it makes the party better but this is the opposite of that this
0: is train spotting.
1: exactly yeah Uh,
0: it gets pretty sorted pretty quickly Mm -hmm. and some of the stuff is also not The opioids aren't really good at promoting socialization. No. A lot of people do it alone. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of these deaths are happening in people's bedrooms Mm -hmm. or in a local restroom where uh, people are dipping out and nodding off and dying in ways that – because the way it happens is that the opioids really depress your lungs and their ability to absorb – oxygen. And that's how you die. Right. I have
1: to uh, quote my friend David again. He's he's the one who says in the piece that, you know, it starts off fun. And it, it was a social activity at first where you all pull your money and you see how many you can get for the night or whatever. But somewhere along the way, if you do cross that line, next thing you know, you're just battling an isolated addiction completely alone.
0: And where are the parents in all this, if you don't mind my asking? Yeah. I mean, they, they, I mean there's a certain level of teenage... Free for all that parents learn to live with because right. it's part of growing up. But they must have realized at some point that something is going awry here. Something is particularly different.
1: Yeah, they do. Um, it's, uh, you know, I would never judge anybody's parenting in, in the. In the uh, just I'm not the, here to judge them. I'm no, just here to no. understand how they're going no, no, to they no, grapple of course. with this. I just uh, I think eventually a parent does realize, and by the time they do, it's usually too late. Um, and you can. This is this is what was interesting about seeing this happen to poor kids and rich kids alike. Because the rich kids, at least their parents had money to send them to rehab, and um, it doesn't. It's just so pernicious that it it hits them all the same way. Um, and there's only so much you can do. I mean, if the whole culture, you know, kind of confers this this, you know, it's just it's just it's ubiquitous. And there's only so much you can protect your kid from.
0: Tell me about your friend David. Um, and and how it shifted with him over the years, because at some point he realized this was not this was a problem for him.
1: Um, yeah, so same thing. You know, he he was a year older than me, and we had different friend groups, but uh, we knew each other our whole lives, and you know there was some overlap with our friends. And he was partying and having fun too, and eventually he just got really hooked, and he did spend his whole life. Um, trying to get off it. And uh, he he did for a really long time. You know, he had, he had almost two years under his belt um, before he passed away uh, in November. And, um, you know, he fought really hard. He tried different rehabs. He tried all different ways. Um, eventually, he got off at cold turkey, but it, it was just a lifelong struggle. And, um, you know, his mom, who's like my aunt, she, um, you know, she tried everything and she tried tough love with him. And, you know, he ended up, you know, in the operating room twice, uh, almost dead when she did that. So then she just had to, you know, she was like his person. He he had a quote in the story that it's really a battle between you and you. But with his case, his mom was extremely involved and she did everything to keep that kid alive. I mean, even when he wasn't talking to her, she would, you know, park her car in his parking lot of his apartment complex if she knew he was using and watch him kind of stumble out of the car and try to clean the car. And she would just sort of Wait there. She always carried two forms of Narcan in her purse, and she would just wait there and watch him in case she had to spring into action and save him. And a lot of times she did. Um, She, you know, he, she's the first to say that he had nine lives. I mean, he crashed multiple cars. He overdosed in a Rite Aid bathroom once. You know, it was a, it was a struggle, and he fought and he fought and he wanted to get out of it so bad. And he, you know, he he um he did for a long time. He uh, was an extremely hard worker. He was making like $50 an hour. He worked in HVAC, and he was supporting his uh, small family that he had just started. And it's just this thing that can come around and grab you again.
0: Yeah. And it, it it's – and it, there's this awful problem that if you have actually gotten off it for a significant amount of time, <clears throat> and then you take what you think is a, a low dose. This is Philip Seymour Hoffman's story. Right then your body is just has lost that tolerance and it can kill you right th- and then of course we should talk about this too uh you go from oxycontin to heroin but then the heroin starts being laced with fentanyl fentanyl is i mean they have different numbers on this but it's something like i don't know 50 to a 1000 times more powerful than regular heroin it's immensely concentrated it's it's in such a tiny concentrated form that it's a little, a little, uh, few few grains of it mm-hmm. can fuck you up pretty solidly, and and a couple more grains and you're dead. I mean, it's it's the other thing that people tell me is that it's incredibly hard to dose on the streets. Mm-hmm. It's just the the amounts the the, the the kind of nuances of of dosage, and in hospitals when they use it for very severe surgeries, anesthesia, and it's used very widely and it's incredibly, it's incredibly successful with such a anesthetic. Um, they they have extraordinary careful dosage measurements. On the street, that's not going to happen at all.
1: Yeah, it does feel like fentanyl has really accelerated this thing at a horrifying pace. And, you know, he told me that two forms of it turned up in his own autopsy. And as he was saying before that happened, it, even if it doesn't kill you, it makes it so much harder to get off of. It's so powerful. And I know of three instances of people who thought they were just doing a bag of Coke and ended up dying because it was it was cut in there. And as he says, you know, a lot of the blocks in the inner city where you would go to get heroin now, they don't even sell just heroin. I mean, it's it's become hard to find just that. It's, it's hard to find anything without fentanyl in it. So this has really accelerated the rate of death.
0: And at one point you... <laughs> you tell this and you go. Liberty's peace. Uh you were in one of those areas in Philly where you could get the stuff and the poli- the cops uh intervened.
1: Yeah, this was sort of my scared straight moment, um, as it were. You'll never be scared totally straight. But, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's probably true. But uh yeah, it was scary. I uh this kid we started hanging out with this older kid that was into a lot more drugs and had sort of been you know, the Virgil for us into a new underworld of eleventh grade. He um he knew where to go down there to get certain things and um you know, we were hanging out at his apartment across the boulevard and uh, you know, after many drinks, decided to get in the car and go find some more stuff, and he stuck out like a sore thumb, you know, just this kid from the suburbs walking around down there looking for drugs, seventeen. And uh the cops kinda grabbed him and ganged up on me and pulled me out of the car and they took my cell phone and called my parents, and they just sort of jacked me up and yelled at me and made me feel like a dumbass kid that I was and sent me packing. And uh, my dad was ready to just wring my neck. I mean, at that point, they learned a lot about what their kid had been doing on the weekends. Um, And
0: I love what the cops said. Who am I calling, mom or dad? Yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: (laughs) It was was scary. Um, And I'm really lucky that it happened, and I do feel uh, there's a part of me that feels almost... Guilty's not quite the right word, but you know, if only every kid had that sort of interaction with a cop where they literally slap you on the wrist and call your parents, that is just not what happens for a lot of people and a lot of people in that neighborhood. So, you yeah. know, I was lucky. There's, there's no two ways about and what it. what
0: about David that time?
1: He, oh, that wasn't him. Oh, it wasn't yeah, him. Yeah, that wasn't him. But he, um, you know, he would disappear down there for a long time. Um. And his mom would drive down there looking for him and she almost got killed going down there a couple of times. I
0: find this whole – the whole the story after story of mothers and fathers sort of chasing their kids, following them, trying to stop this happening and having this sense of intense helplessness that they can't yeah. get their hands around this, this kid they love and who is just lost to them and it's – it's an incredibly hard situation. For
1: yeah, kids to be in. it's it's horrifying to watch them go through it. And that neighborhood in particular, Kensington, it's gobbled up a lot of kids. And, um, you know, when we were at the funeral for him, the pastor talked about the, you know, the pastor's in recovery as well. And he talked about breaking open his kid's piggy bank and getting enough money and quarters out of it to go down there and find a bag and you know there were just bodies in the street there and people go down there hoping to find their kid it's it's just horrifying um yeah it's it's really dark
0: do you think we've in the media i mean there were loads and loads of stories about this but none of them very few of them really really broke through um the numbers of deaths i think went up last year is that true i mean the pandemic must have made everything worse yeah,
1: people say that. Look, I'm no expert on this. I'm not, certainly not Sally Satel, who you had on the podcast previously. She's brilliant. I don't know about the science behind it. I don't know about the policy behind it. I'm just talking about it as somebody who came of age during this time. So I can only talk about you know, the experiences of my friends and family and myself. But I will say that in the case of David, the pandemic had absolutely nothing to do with it. Right. Um, I think I think that if I had to bring in the pandemic element of it, all I would say is this. Um, When you are sober, you're sort of on a knife's edge and anything can set you off and anything can press the button. And I think that for a lot of people probably cooped up at home, there could be a lot of triggers, anything goes wrong in their lives and they know, you know, the the bag is just one phone call away. So I think if the pandemic factors into the opioid crisis, it, it would be that way.
0: Did people come and deliver the drugs to you at home or in a parking lot? Or, yeah, you know? it was a mix. You say you make a call. You must have a...
1: Yeah, usually it would be like somebody would just show up to a party and then have a bunch of different stuff. Okay. Yeah.
0: Um, uh, why do you think this has taken such hold? I mean, there have been drugs before. There have been waves of, of epidemics. Um, we had... A pretty bad crack epidemic at one point. We're still going through this meth epidemic, which is also pretty horrifying. Um, were their lives and were your lives sort of lacking in something? Was this Did this come along because, and did it feel great because your regular lives really weren't that great? No, it wasn't
1: like that. And I know that there's uh, a lot that's been written about sort of the deaths of despair, as they call it. Yeah. and. Billy elegy this is not um, and I you know I just watched this great documentary the wonderful wild whites of West Virginia have you seen it no Johnny Knoxville produced it it's very much about this sort of Appalachia I think it's it it hits on on what you just described that wasn't the case here these just suburban kids I mean once again just think about dazed and confused it was like that we were just having fun
0: I think that um, but if you slip this agent into that having fun suburban kids thing you suddenly turn yeah. into a in, down a very dark alleyway right i just think that the society is so overprescribed
1: so you 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 were either getting it because you were going through somebody's parents medicine cabinet or somebody else was and then selling it if they're everywhere kids are going to do them that's how i feel
0: and the resell was a huge financial incentive too right you can get yeah. them quite easily and quickly many of these Opioids we could get on Medicaid, actually, and it really wasn't that expensive, but you could you could then turn around and sell them for a fucking fortune.
1: Yeah. I forget the exact prices when I was in high school, but oxys were pretty expensive, which was another reason why people started
0: do just doing heroin eventually, because it was so much cheaper. But then, but then there was also this decision by health authorities to really crack down, which, of course, in context, you can see why they were wanting to do that, but in the context... It's also uh, you suddenly cut all these people off right. from their source and expect them to just somehow not find it elsewhere. But we know, we know that doesn't really happen. There's
1: uh, there's something infuriating too about the crackdown that. Um Lately, you know, lawyers and and representatives and PR people and crisis managers for Purdue and the Sacklers, and they're, trying, they're out there trying to push this narrative to journalists and the media right now that it's not their fault that kids end up using heroin and how ridiculous that is and that they only make up a certain percentage of the market share. But they never seem to reckon with the fact that the kids would never be doing heroin if it weren't for them in the first place as the middleman. I mean, they just never sort of explain how they think a bunch of kids end up using heroin in 11th grade. That just doesn't happen. They don't well, they, just pick up the bag and start with that.
0: No, they believed that they had solved the problem of human pain. Right. That that they had found a way to do this which would not be addictive. That's the whole key of OxyContin. Their well, argument was this isn't like heroin. We can. This isn't because we can release it over a long period of time. We don't get people having a big high... Uh, of course, what they of course, they, but before they tweaked the composition of it, and they have, a, and they and you could crush it, it. It could be way way better. I mean, that was a, uh, and their abil- their constant efforts to avoid responsibility or to really take seriously the damage that they were doing is is damning. I, I mean, it, it renders them among the least ethical. Absolutely, uh, behaviors in American <laughs> yeah. capitalism I've ever come across. But I, but again, it's important. They didn't set out to do that. They really were enthusiastic. There was this, if you remember, there was this huge campaign that you don't have to feel pain anymore. In fact, if you're feeling pain, your doctor's doing something wrong. And uh, this was this was a huge movement within the health industry and within the whole notion that we can. We can and and the truth is also done properly with limits. They have been incredibly helpful to people, and that's why I, I think in their right context, with short dosages that get you through a difficult operation or or, or some difficult pain. I don't. I'm not against these things in principle. Right. Um, but it was done with such recklessness, and it was also done out of a, a missionary zeal that somehow like all these crazy things that go wrong it was it was done with the best of intentions
1: right there's a uh you know the response to this piece i wrote in the times has just been absolutely overwhelming i've i've been receiving messages just uh, on all different platforms people really 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 sad stories and as tell I've,
0: me tell me about some of it.
1: well i've had um you know i've had a lot of people my age uh some kid just messaged me on instagram and said he's been to six funerals in two years of all his friends and that He's barely holding on to sobriety himself. And I had this girl that I used to party with in high school read the piece, and apparently she posted on her Facebook that um, she it made her realize that she is just seconds away from relapsing and that she doesn't want to end up just being another high school reunion over a coffin. And So there have been a lot of really, really emotional, powerful messages about it. But uh, as I've parsed the comments, I did notice one thread emerge, uh, which hits on what you just mentioned, which there were some people that were saying they're, they suffer genuine pain from chronic illnesses, and that it's become harder for them to get the drugs because of this stuff, which is one sort of perverse side effect of the whole crisis that I had never even considered before, and I don't know much
0: about. But no, it's a real problem. That, it sounds that, that horrible, people yeah. People genuinely seeking this and needing this stuff for severe pain. I mean, he, I, my mom, for example, she's 85, and she she's lost most of the cartilage in the, bottom of her spine, and she has one of these fentanyl oh, a patch, patch yeah. uh, that saves her life, yeah. even though we caught her with, like, two on once. And <laughs> there you go. <laughs> it it yeah. wasn't that she was trying to get high. It was that she was a little clumsy about it and forgot she already had one on and sure, then another one sure. on. <laughs> Keep an eye on her. <laughs> I know. She's going to dip out any yeah. any day now. But, no, she, she. So far as I can see, it's not having that effect on her. But, yeah, that's the other you you veer in one direction too much. You you remove its legitimate use, um, and I and I don't think most people aren't interested in avoiding it for legitimate use. Although it certainly means that I'm much more careful for like a, a, a truth extraction or something right. that's going to be painful. I I try not. I try to avoid any opiates at all. I did I did a Percocet once to go to a party, and. I did make it more fun. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I got this – I I definitely felt less depressed and less socially anxious, um, but I realized – and it was something I had left over from something I hadn't used. But these long prescriptions of the stuff are are almost designed to addict people. For sure. We've had these ways before. I mean, as I I pointed out in this piece a couple of of years ago, opium was once – the best and the most reliable and the only pain reliever really that humans had. And in America it was I think a statistic here that in in the eighteen seventies it was easier to get opium than it would be than it would be to get a cigarette in the nineteen seventies. It was in everything. You had it for your babies, uh, you had it in this thing called Laudanum. You you people took it quite regularly. But opium, of course has its limits what happens is that after you if you smoke it a well, while you do get addicted, you do become you have a huge amount of lassitude, you're boring you you nod out <clears throat> but and you will fall asleep a lot, but you don't die. Mm-hmm. It's very hard to overdose from just smoking opium. It's the much more concentrated forms the morphine and the heroin and then the fentanyl,
1: yeah that do it to you. The way we've hacked these things is crazy and by the way, the drugs that they might give you to get off of it are just can be just as scary as well. I mean, there was a phase where so many people in my high school had been checked into inpatient rehab that suddenly Suboxone had become some huge thing because everybody got sent home with Suboxone. So then people were using abusing Suboxone. And uh, that fucked people up in some ways even worse than the than the oxy's did. Hmm.
0: What does Suboxone do exactly? It,
1: it's, it's supposed to help with the withdrawal, uh, so okay. people get it in treatment a lot, but it's it's devilishly strong. I remember uh, you know, some girl had one pill, and she split it in three one day when we were after school. And uh, I didn't take it, and the other three kids I was with took it, and they started throwing up. And the one kid was crying, and they tried to fight each other, and they could barely walk. I mean, it was crazy what this one little pill did to them. And so you know, sometimes the uh, the way they treat you can be just as bad.
0: Yeah, and after the Civil War, because it was so used for injuries, it was it was it was. They grew both Union and Confederate armies grew vast fields of poppies to to use opium to operate uh, in the most brutal way on so many. And then, of course, it had this knock-on effect that that uh, women bought it who'd lost. Spouses, it 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 helped them to deal with grief. You know, the the ancient Greeks uh, put opium in the drinks they had at funerals. Wow, that it was the that was it was used at funeral events so that it would ease the pain of the loss. Uh, This is not substance that has is new to human beings it's one of the oldest and it's quite easy to to make I mean I remember the the uh, the EA rated uh, Monticello
1: oh right this was in your piece right yeah <laughs> they actually
0: raided Monticello because hilarious. Jefferson being a man of his time and being interested in science and grew grew uh, uh, this particular uh, this particular plant, these poppies, which you <laughs> and, see everywhere. And right? Benjamin Franklin, too, right? Of course. Some major figures, like w- William Wilberforce, for example, the great abolitionist, was a daily opium user. And open about it, too. This, this It was like smoking weed or smoking cigarettes. It was not some completely forbidden substance. I just, I, a part of me wonders how humans can get back into a much more sort of natural and... Uh, connection with the way in which nature does provide things that help us get through right. life. I mean, we've always had the ability to to use this poppy to help us. Uh, God knows how long, far back cannabis goes. Some of these psychoactive agents. I had last year on this this this, this show, um, Brian Marescu, pointing about how pointing out how ancient Greek ceremonies also had psychedelics um, in their. Their, their wine. They had raves, essentially. Um, <laughs> yes, and the, uh, some early Christians in some places used it in the communion wine. Wow. Uh, and, and had all sorts of interesting uh, transcendent experiences this way.
1: That could get me to go back to church.
0: <laughs> well, I actually said, yes. I actually said, they should try this again. They yeah. should try it again. It, because, they, because of, well, that's psychedelics, which is a very different thing, but that psychedelics definitely connect you to something sublime and divine in a way that o- opium does. And opium just just numbs you in pain, and it it takes that pain away. Um, which is why I'm reluctant to think there isn't something broader here causing the attractiveness of this particular drug.
1: I'm sure there is, uh, from a huge societal perspective, there must be. I again, I can only speak about it as as a kid who went through it, and I think it was just the abundance of it everywhere.
0: Yeah, it also reminds me the way you talk of your friends going to funeral after funeral. It it reminds me a lot. I mean, just I'm a veteran of this, but it reminds me of that period in my life when I was roughly your age, and that's all I did too. Um, it was horrible. from from AIDS. It, right. It's it's uh, a to watch the young generation die. In this kind of way is 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 particularly spiritually ravaging.
1: Yeah, it's really unnatural. Uh, I had a line in the piece about this. Um, my editor was asking me how uh, you know versus the the pandemic, and I just think that while people were really scared of COVID at a certain point in my community, COVID is not killing your kid. It's not wiping out seventeen-year-olds and twenty-five-year-olds. So you know after. David passed away that first night. Everybody was just like, oh, to hell with it. You know, masks off. The house is packed. People are grieving. And at a certain point, you just kind of forget about the Mm. pandemic that's going on because there's something
0: really, really unnatural about the way this is wiping out people's kids. And you need – I mean, this is one thing about the pandemic. It's regardless of whether it is – it's intensified people's loneliness and being shut away, which can lead to higher – Levels of abuse. It, it takes away interesting things to do that might not. Uh, yeah. But but it also just reduces as reduce the ability to be with people physically. Yeah. And the idea that that you'd go through these tragedies without being able to hold each other, to to look at each other face to face, to support each other. Is really grueling. I mean, I, I'm just now free associating the picture of the queen, yeah, alone, you know, in this horrible moment for her of losing someone she's, she's been married with, I don't know, for about 150 years or however long they're right, married. Right. And there she is, uh, alone, like the rest of us, absolutely like the rest of us. So I, uh, similarly, like, I mean, I, this is another thing, my father had a terrible accident died about a year ago, a little bit over a year ago. And the COVID meant inability to really collectively grieve, process, have a funeral even. You, yeah, you, uh, that's so horrible. I'm sorry. I, I remember you told me you couldn't go back to England, right? Well, I could actually, but then uh, I couldn't subsequently go back to England. But as it happened, it was just as COVID was happening. Couldn't, wasn't allowed in hospital, wasn't allowed. It's terrible. And it's, it, it is a grueling thing, and I think now that this is beginning to ease, we're going to have to do more of that. Yeah, I think. and we need to do more than that more more of that. Um, how do you feel about legalizing drugs? I don't know. I, i've read
1: I've read both sides of it. I don't have an opinion. I'm not sure. I, mm-hmm. I just don't know how to fix this. I I keep hoping that. Uh, Enough people will see and read about communities going through this, and it will it will stem the tides.
0: But that doesn't but can, seem to but be what happening. What can we do? That is my. This is a thing always when one's dealing with someone in the in drug addiction. I I have had many friends go through meth addiction, which is a, is is another huge epidemic that's killing, God knows how many gay men right now, as well as many others in different contexts. Um. And I, you know, there are friends of mine that I've tried to engage, I've tried to rescue, I've tried to talk to, and then I'm lied to. Tragic, <laughs> Constantly, yeah. that, that you can't even tell where they are because they will not tell you the truth. And after a while, I've learned that I just, that at some point, I'm just enabling and I have to just cut off contact uh, because I can't handle it anymore. Yeah,
1: you run out of you run out of ways to help eventually. D- did you read uh, Hunter Biden's book, by the way? No, I haven't.
0: How? What really do you think about it? Really good.
1: That? I thought it was really, really powerful. Addiction memoir. Hmm. It was barely about politic politics at all. Uh, I thought it was amazing. And he and what you just described, he really goes through because he's lying to everybody, and you they have to help themselves in a way too. But it's it's tragic.
0: The way his father has dealt with it, to my mind, is one of the most admirable.
1: <laughs> it's beautiful, yeah. I I think, uh, I, I t- to my mind, one of his best moments on the campaign trail, if not the best, was when Trump was cruelly mocking Hunter on the debate stage, and he turned around and was like, there's nothing to be ashamed of about my kid. He struggles with addiction, and he's beating it, and I'm proud of him, and I love him. And I think that connected with so many people, and it was such a dumb thing for Trump to do it because was. he has such... He had such support in places like Ohio and Pennsylvania, where I'm from, and I just profiled a police chief in New Hampshire who was at the Capitol riot, and the police chief, everybody in the town knew the reason why he loved Trump is because Trump promised him personally that he would help solve the opioid crisis because the guy had lost a kid this way, and people were really hoping he would shake it up, and it was so dumb for him to ridicule Biden's son about addiction, and I think the country has... I think there's been a sea change in how we think and talk about addiction in the country. You saw this with the George Floyd trial, too. I mean, the you know, the defense had to be really careful when they talked about his drug dependency and when the girlfriend took the stand and and, and told how they both got addicted to to opiates. She had pain in her neck and he had it in his back, or maybe vice versa. And the whole way that was approached, not just in the courtroom but by the media was just seems to me completely different than how it would have been covered even in the 90s you know in other words
0: the uh, this crack addict, crack addict deserved everything
1: he got, yeah, as opposed to exactly yeah as, as opposed to compassion it's this thing's so widespread now and again this is something i'm seeing with the comments and i i just got a i just got an email today from a reader who was admonishing me for using the word "clean" in the piece. I wrote that David had been clean for two years, and I thought, "Shit, he's totally right." You know, the 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 language that we use has to change too. You know, you don't call people junkies or addicts anymore. I think there's been a, a much more widespread understanding.
0: You had this extraordinary term I hadn't heard before, "jawn head." Oh right, yeah. J a w n head. What yeah. does that mean?
1: Well, that's actually. That's that's a Philly word. In Philly, they use this okay. word John, and it basically just means noun. I mean, anything can be a John. You okay. know? You're know, you speaking into a John right now.
0: Okay. Uh,
1: okay. You know, put that John closer to your face. I can't hear you. Right. It's sort of like that. But uh, people use the word John to mean oxys. So, like, you know, yeah, he brought Johns to the party tonight. So it's a way to – Kind
0: of conceal what is, what they're doing, or is it, is it sort? No, how I could you it, tell it was uh, it's, uh, opioids it's and not something <laughs> else? No, I
1: know it's weird. I don't know why. Just in my high school, people knew that Johns meant in that context what it meant and uh so therefore somebody who becomes addicted to Oxycontin becomes a john head and then and then heroin was dope so there's a difference between a john head and a dope head
0: yeah and then dope also means we i mean the, the it it gets really really Tangled. complicated pretty yeah. really fast but i am abs- i'm fascinated by the way language is 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 reinvented and reused and yeah but there were other i remember when i was writing this too um i i've learned not to use the word addict as a noun right because I mean, i'm I'm opposed to all sort of ridiculous PC sensitivity, you know. right. yeah, but but at the same time, you 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 don't want to give a false impression of what's going on here. They're not they're people dealing with addiction, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And they, they, they they are addicted in some senses, but then there's an this other, then there's this other school of thought, which is that that there's no real chemical thing going on. It's all it's 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 all about oppression and and people's response to oppression. And every heroin, uh, every every person who's become addicted to heroin is, you know, all good. I mean, th- th- it's complicated. It's Everyone very comes complicated. At it in different ways, and there are there are there are ways in which people on drugs behave horribly and are really horrible to other people. There's a. Uh, I mean, meth is horrible, and the way that people use it and abuse it and also abuse each other in the process. Oh,
1: it'll make you rob your own family members. Just quickly, before I forget, while we're on the subject of language, I told my aunt I was going to do this podcast today, and she told me that in the addiction community, people have started using this phrase substance abuse disorder disorder. As opposed to addiction, and she said I should mention that that it was pretty. Anyone listening who who's struggling would would understand what it meant. But that's kind of a new terminology in the way they're reframing it.
0: It's not a great acronym. SUD. Sad. <laughs> oh, oh sad. sad. I mean, right? Yeah, sad. sad.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I can't spell.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, it's not a great
1: acu- acronym, but it's accurate.
0: Yeah, yeah, and and I think understanding the the misery that sometimes addiction is seen to be a false solution to is also a problem <laughs> that the, the reality that people are and it's not that the reality is awful but once they get on these drugs t- everything seems temporarily so much better right that the the the, the, the you don't want to go back mm-hmm. uh, it's the way in which people who use meth to have sex for example if they have b- become uh addicted to it uh have a, And and then have recovery of some sort, and not on it. They they find sex meaningless without it. It's just once you've experienced certain things in a certain way, not replicating that experience feels feels like the world's gone black and white again.
1: This uh this this makes me think of uh, the Amy Winehouse documentary. Have you seen that? It's an amazing documentary, but it's so tragic. And there's this part where she's she's kick you know she she's sober. She's not using heroin and uh, she, she ends up, I think it's the moment when she wins the Grammy and she accepts from overseas or something to do with winning the Grammy and maybe Tony Bennett's involved and it's this moment that's supposed to be the peak of her career. And uh, she turns to one of her friends and says, I feel nothing. Without drugs, I feel nothing. This, this means nothing to me. And outwardly, she's supposed to be really happy about it, but but the drugs have just sapped everything from her. And it's like so heartbreaking. She just can't even enjoy what's supposed to be the best moment of her career
0: you you cease to have the ability to enjoy extremely simple things that require no added uh, bounce to them yeah just a, a beautiful day um, a cup of coffee um, right a good night's sleep <laughs> yeah things like that become dead to you I,
1: I, yeah I, I maybe not maybe not always. I know like with my cousin, one thing that helped him stay sober was fishing. It was a huge passion of his, and he could really get some peace of mind when he would do that. But in the moments when he really struggled, I know he would tell his mom, "You know, I, I don't want to be like this anymore. I just I wish I wasn't like this. I, I don't want to feel this way, and it, it is horrible, and it's something that people will struggle with for the rest of their lives. What,
0: what can we do? Proactively to prevent kids sliding into this, apart from yelling at them, this 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 will this is not a good idea. You, there are points where you you just personally decided at one point in this transition towards harder and harder drugs. You know, I'm not doing that one. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm I'm not going to join that. And that takes a certain amount of self regard, actually.
1: Yeah, uh, I'm I'm not sure. I um. You know, with my two or three best friends in the story, too, we kind of had a pact where because we saw a lot of other people sliding down and we were like, this one's drifting too far. We got to keep an eye on him. But at the end of the day, there's really only so much you can do. And I even uh, recently we all had a friend who sort of became a cause for concern and we wondered, you know, what's going on with him? Something's not right there. Is he using again? And you realize that, that you really can't do anything. I mean, what are you going to do? Follow the person around every single day and make sure everything they put in their mouth is, is on the level? It's scary. That's what's so scary about it.
0: And and also when you try and interrogate them, you can trust nothing that they say. And, and so they violate this trust that you have between each other. Which makes it harder to talk honestly, and so you gradually separate. It's it's horrible process. Yeah,
1: and people get fed up, and they have to get back on with their lives, and
0: so they why have a job to David, do. Why is David dead and you're alive?
1: Oh, I I don't know. I I could never answer that.
0: You grew up together. You were
1: yeah. I from, got from the,
0: from the time you were in diapers, you knew each other.
1: Yeah, I he I don't know. Some people end up trying more than others. And then, as he said, before you know it, you're across the line and you can't get back. I think it's as simple as that. In the context of teenagers partying.
0: what w- When he tried to explain where he was headed or what what were the words that he would use about it when he talked to you honestly about this?
1: Hmm. You mean in recent years?
0: Yeah. When you asked him in recent years what's going on, are you have you got a hold of this, are you... Are you struggling again? How can I help you? All the things that you might do to someone you love.
1: You know, I didn't have a really candid conversation with about with uh, about this with him until he had been sober for a while. And this was, you know, not long before his death. So we really talked about a lot of stuff. But if you're talking about in the moment when you know the person's going to use, I, I was not checking in on him that way. The way that his his best friends were and his mom. I, I, I haven't lived in Pennsylvania in 10 years. Right. So. You have to live there. Right. to
0: be around it to to understand and see what's happening. But but nonetheless, when you spoke with him after he'd been in recovery, and you don't have to answer these questions if you think they're too personal or invasive. Please forgive me. Sure. I'm just fascinated by the process. Um, How was he explaining it to you? How did he describe his own addiction to you? Was it just a a horrible consequence of something he started out doing and he couldn't really control it? Was Was that what he was saying?
1: Yeah, he talked about it, you know, the same way that I do in the beginning, which is we were partying the same way and older kids are doing this and you hear about that and it sounds pretty fun and somebody shows up with this at a party, so you try it and then eventually he's addicted and as he described it, it's a battle between, you know, he he described it as almost good versus evil in your brain and he said that once... It had really taken hold you can't do anything he can't he, he couldn't even have a sip of beer because the second that he'd have a sip of beer at you know a barbecue or somebody's birthday it's like this one sip of beer isn't doing what i need it to do i i need to have more beer and and now i need to have liquor and once you have your your second drink you're thinking about who you can call to get a percocet and maybe just one of those is okay and that's not going to kill you and you take one of those and then that's not doing enough for you and there were other moments uh I think when he started the spiral and felt like he needed to do something and even if he managed to not do heroin, he would have to do some kind of other drug to alter his state. But it's scary. It's like a very, very slippery slope. For, so for him, it was all or nothing. And I know that's not the case with everybody who struggles, but for him, he couldn't do anything. And there was a lot of stuff he couldn't come to. I mean, we would have, you know, my mom has a big Halloween party every year and he just couldn't come anymore because... He couldn't be around all that. And that's a shame because that's another way of a person being deprived of the joys of life, even when they're sober.
0: Right. They have to be exempted from a lot of other.
1: Yeah. And this thing, this stuff has become so common in my town, which is another reason why I decided to write about it again because the week of the funeral, I, I really realized the scope of it just from the sheer number of people that were around that week who'd lost somebody. And everybody knows somebody, and you kind of have to keep tabs in your head, you know, of who can come to what, and 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 who's sober right now, and who isn't, and and, and who you haven't heard from in a long time, and it's there's almost a sort of, even with 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 friends, um, almost like a roll call, you know, this grim sort of, when's the last time anyone heard from so and so, or you'll never guess who's a dopehead now, and that sort of thing, and. You know, you could be scrolling through your social media feed, and boom, you get hit with another remembrance post, and it's like, holy shit, that person's dead. Can't believe that. But it, it's so common.
0: The the collective trauma of this too. This every community experiences deaths all the time, but deaths of young people, especially like in their teens and twenties, is particularly ravaging for people. Um, it 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 for parents, it's 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 the worst thing that can happen to you.
1: Yeah, the the families are never the same and then each time it happens again, i think for a lot of these parents it's just like dumping salt into an open wound when they see another family going through it in the community, it brings everything back. It brings everything rushing back and i'm also sort of now getting a little worried about the next generation coming up because i know friends who had kids that are no lo- you know and they're no longer here. So now they're leaving behind toddlers and stuff. And I th- I can Who's think of taking
0: care of them, the extended family, the or? extended
1: family. And if the partner remains, I have another friend who passed away two weeks before David. And he has a beautiful seven year old daughter. And the, you know, the, the mom is a really good friend of mine. And now she's raising that kid on her own. And David had two kids, has two kids. So that's something I'm thinking about, too, because some people who get addicted in high school. end up you know, struggling with this for the next ten years, and now that fentanyl's on the scene, people are just kind of dropping, and it's 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 a whole. I mean, the wreckage that it leaves behind is just
0: vast. And that must have an effect on the viability of the town's economy, of its social life, of its of its it its meaning.
1: I do, I do think there's a certain melancholy that permeates. I think people are numb to this in a lot of ways and used to it. It's it's shocking how uh, commonplace it feels like a fact of life. Which is another another reason why I wanted to write about it because I don't live there anymore. It when I go back, I realize how just not normal this is.
0: Is there a dynamic in which this kind of trauma leads to more use of? I mean, you're in so much pain, seeking out something that will numb the pain. That 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 these things actually compound, or or is that just a? a... I'm I'm not sure. Right. I,
1: I think I think. With a lot of my I, – when I think about my good friends, we know we would never take any of that shit anymore. If I went and had beers with somebody from high school and they pulled out a bottle of Percocet or something, I'd be like, what the
0: fuck is wrong with you? There must be – something that happened with crack, which might be um, – there came a point at which the devastation was so great that almost collectively – there was this decision to just not tolerate it anymore. Now they were. This was in the 80s and 90s. Now they were partly enabled by this, the massive police crackdown that took a lot of uh, crack dealers off the streets. Um, but there, there does seem to come a moment sometimes when communities that have been beset by this kind of massive drug invasion kind of collectively say, "We're not doing that anymore. We've got to find a way to stop that." That there's a kind of collective shift in attitude. And I would think that given the the extraordinary uh, trauma of this, that, that that when you your kids, you're going to make sure they never touch this stuff.
1: I would hope so. But crack is not something that the doctor gives you because you hurt right. your back. Right. So this is so mainstreamed. Yeah. That's what's, it just seems very different to me.
0: Except they have begun to control that a lot more. Allegedly. Allegedly. You, you don't, where, where are all these is it, is it mainly now on the street heroin, or is it, are there still uh, oxies and Perks hanging I, around? I,
1: I don't know. I, I Well, there's certainly still oxies and Perks hanging around. I mean, I, I had this at the, at the end of the piece, but uh, that day of the funeral, while we were there, some other kid who was 19, who's friends with my sister, overdosed just on oxies. And then it happened three weeks later with another kid she's friends with, and it was Oxys again. So these kids didn't even make it to heroin. Hmm. So it's still happening for sure. Hmm.
0: I, I wish I had anything optimistic to say about this. And, and part of it is just like just hope that as often happens with these things, there's some kind of moment of turnaround and yeah. cultural uh, a kind of critical mass of deciding that we are not going to live like this anymore. Yeah. But I worry that the, the sheer toll of it Makes that kind of thinking almost heroic. I, I, I can't imagine how losing your kids, can, can just permanently ruin your 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 spirit.
1: Yeah, the only thing I, I can think of that helps is uh, even just talking about it. Because one of the reasons why it was so pervasive and allowed to go on is because it was flourishing in secret. Uh, there was a stigma around it. So even in the town, with so many people passing away, there are certain parents that want to pretend like it's not happening in the community that they've chosen to raise their kids in. And this contributes to more death and more people using because it's if it's supposed to be in secret, that's not helping anybody. Right,
0: and they're, they're somewhat ashamed right. that their kid died in their bedroom. And they'll put out a different reason. Exactly. And, and that keeps the whole... Uh, thing going yeah i have a uh, in the story
1: there's the mother of one of our classmates who passed away uh she volunteers with this organization called shatterproof which she says has been really helpful in trying to reverse the stigma and she just says that you know when people find out that her kid passed away they want to ask how and then once they find out why it's just sort of like oh okay and then they don't want to talk about it anymore right and that is really not good
0: yeah it also reminds me of AIDS in the old days. Oh, that's uh, interesting. Where it was completely hidden for a very long time. The shame around it, too, that a child dies and somehow you're ashamed of it. Right. Uh, it's so horrible. <laughs> yeah. It, it it compounds it horribly. Um, is there anything that you've written, I mean, not you've written, that you've read or come across that really helped you understand this, that, that maybe our dish heads out there could—, could could read apart from your excellent piece you it's it's hard to get because it's 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 not online
1: oh yeah i actually uh, found a web uh archive version of it i'll send it to you
0: there's a yeah there yeah. We, maybe we can post a link to it cool. or something so that people can download the pdf yeah i find the pdf put it in your kindle it 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 really helps cool um yeah, uh, I don't want to uh, in any way ruin the coolness of never having it <laughs> online because, frankly, at this point, I understand the imperative right. to stay out of that cray cray. Right, right, um, right. Uh, but Sean, I just want to thank you. I, I didn't want to. I just want to talk about life and your experience of it and remind people this is still going on in in a, in really awful ways. That it's affecting kids. It's breaking up families. It's destroying economies. It's it's ruining life in so many places, um, and the only solace I have is that we've seen these things happen before. The vast there was a huge, big increase in opium use, for example, in England in the in the early 19th century with industrialization. It's it's also partly common in periods of very fast social, economic, cultural change when people feel a little disoriented, and it seems to have a connection with the use of opium and opiates to kind of numb it all a little bit. Unfortunately, with technology, the numbing it all a little bit becomes killing yourself very quickly. Right. Um, I mean, there are amazing stories of people going on trains through the countryside of England and seeing farm laborers passed out, whole, like standing up with their, bending over wow. their forks and pitchforks because they were fast asleep. Just the, 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 the people in the fields were literally prone. Uh, this was very common. Wow. um, and so, and somehow, in some kind of social shift, it moved on. Some other things came in. Um, uh, but, uh, that's my only hope that somehow there'll be something we can't control that will shift things a little bit. But it certainly doesn't look like it's happening now,
1: yeah, the historical perspective is is a little hopeful, I agree, and very interesting. I feel like uh, in terms of it being a story, in some ways I was thinking a lot about Afghanistan this week, now that Biden's pulling Mm. out, and in some ways it does remind me of our forever wars because it's this thing that's been going on for two decades in the background and it no longer really makes the front page and everyone kind of knows it's happening out there and it's this sort of national shame, but no one really wants to talk about it and it just seems like this horrible fact of American life.
0: Except that the toll on American lives is far greater. That it has ever been in Afghanistan. Right, that's true. The threat domestically is far greater than Al-Qaeda presents it ever. Um, for sure. So, yeah, uh, it is. And I think not becoming numb to it is is an incredibly difficult but important thing to do. For that, I want to thank you very much, Sean, for coming in. Thanks uh, so much for having me. Wonderful to hear more about the story and your own pain in it. And I I will I will pray for you, too. I Losing losing your friends young from something that you can't control is, 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 a affects you for your whole life. You won't forget the people you lost and they'll live with you. And there will be a moment where you will constantly ask yourself, why did they die and me not? And that's, that's, that all I can say is that having lived through that myself in a different context, um, I understand the pain you're in, and the only way to th- look at it, I think, is to realize, you know, well, I'm still alive, and I have a life, and I can do good with it, and my friend wouldn't wish me to do otherwise. In fact, would be would hate the idea that I would uh, give up, Or uh, and that's – and it also helps you – I mean, for me anyway, uh, maybe we're getting too personal here, but um, it, it makes you realize your own – insignificance in a way. The, 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 what does it mean that some, another human being only lived 23 years and you're going to live uh, 60 or 70 if you're lucky? Yeah. That doesn't make him any less than you. It helps you see that life is not about how long it is, but what you do with it. Um, and that was a big a big lesson I, I learned from the whole AIDS experience.
1: Yeah, well, I was just really happy that I could write about their lives and their experiences and the experiences of their family because people forget and they do move on in some ways and that's really hard for the people left behind so thanks for letting me talk about it
0: absolutely and you did it beautifully i recommend the essay we'll we'll put a link to it on the podcast page and we'll see you next time thanks so much thanks so much andrew you bet bye-bye